You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Our geek, Sean Cleveland, Senior Technical Marketing Manager at NVIDIA. Morning, Sean. Good morning. Miles, no, Miles is not here. Ryder Brooks, Support Engineer at Sun Microsystems. Good morning. Good morning. We do have David Weber. Weber, welcome. Good morning. Thank you. <laughs> if you'd like to participate in our discussion about sci- about uh, the news for the, for the first 15 minutes, please feel free, David. We'd love your opinions. And Rick Kleffel, thank you very much for being here as well. Thank you for having me. Yes, so, Rick Kleffel of the Agony Column. <laughs> yes. That's right. <laughs> Trashotron.com. Slash agony. Yes. <laughs> um, Sean, I think I'll start the geek news with you. Um, yeah, so Windows Vista is, um, you know, we've been talking about, you know, if, if you should upgrade or not. And if you do, which version do you go with? And I've always recommended Vista 64 just because almost every version except the lowest version, this, you know, the cheapest, um, actually comes with both versions on the disk. I didn't know that. Yeah. Cool. So, um, so you know, why install 32-bit when you can go with 64? Well, 64-bit got a really bad rap with XP. Um, for right. some reason, it just never got the uptick. Nobody built drivers. Um, nobody uh, added... The, well, a lot of companies didn't add the support that they were adding for 32-bit to 64-bit. And there were driver instabilities and issues. Sure. Um, and they just didn't get ironed out. It still has problems. I would not install XP64. Um, but this is a totally different story. But this right? is a different story, yeah. Um, I think Microsoft realized what had gone wrong with XP, and they really put a lot of effort into getting support from companies... Um, for both versions of 32 and 64. And working at NVIDIA, I know for a fact that we uh, we, we optimize the 64-bit drivers just as much as we do 32-bit. Yeah. And, of so, course, with 64, right off the bat, you get to put more memory in the system. Yeah, well, that's the big key. 64-bit's um, not going to give you any performance just by itself. But the fact that you can address more than 2 gigabytes of memory certainly makes Major a difference uh, depending on the type of applications you're running. Well, and, and even uh, in the air room is Ryder Brook, Sean Cleveland, Rick Kleffel, and David Weber. I'm Lyle Troxell. We now are going to... We're, we're going to go into our interview with David and talk to a David Weber about his books, but we will be covering more news as we feel it's appropriate. David Weber is an American science fiction and fantasy author. In his stories, he creates a consistent and rationally explained technology and society, even, <laughs> even if ours is not that rational. Um, when dealing with fantasy themes, and the magical powers are even treated like other technology with supporting rational laws and principles. Many of his stories have military, particularly naval themes, and fit into the military science fiction genre. He challenges current gender roles in the military by assuming that a gender-neutral military service will exist in the future, and frequently placing female-leading characters in what have previously been seen as traditional male roles. And, of course, his most popular character in that, that fits that very well is Honor Arrington, um, who is... I believe, and correct me, David, if I'm wrong, is an homage to Foster's character in um, in Hornblower. Is that true? She's actually based more directly on uh, Horatio Nelson, uh, who, of course, was the template for Hornblower as well. Uh-huh. Uh, but when I decided to create the series, I knew if it worked that Hornblower was what it was going to be compared to. And I always love Forster's books myself. So since I had decided that her first name was going to be Honor, and, and I you was did looking for something for that would be a little, you know, euphonious here, um, I went with Honor Harrington, and, and it worked. Um, to some extent, there's, there's, there's an homage element in it. 
Um, but honor is definitely... Hornblower never really rose above the rank of captain or commodore during his active service during the, the war. Sure. And I always intended that honor was not going to be Jim Kirk, who would be perpetually commanding a, a starship. <laughs> so she was going to get promoted yeah. eventually. So from the very beginning, I had assumed that this was someone who was going to rise to the pinnacle of command, unlike Hornblower. And and the honor verse, as it's now known as, um, like 13 or 14 novels, more on the way, and of course, uh, shared anthologies too. Mm-hmm. Well, there are 11 what I think of as mainstream novels that are all directly about honor. Uh, then there are two side uh, novels, uh, Shadow Saganami and uh, Crown of Slaves. Crown of Slaves is a collaboration with Eric Flint. Eric and I have done several collaborators. We work well together. And then there are, I think, it's five volumes of, um, of uh, short fiction. Uh, which I invite other writers to come play at my house. Um, and I've incorporated several characters from their short fiction into the ongoing storyline. Let me, um, let's not talk about your new series. Okay. Uh, I'm saying new series, I guess, um, off, um, um, how long has this been booked out? Uh, off Armageddon Reef came out, I think, January a year ago. Yeah, so it's a pretty new series. Yeah. And I just, just finished um, By Schism Rent Asunder, and wonderful. And of course, the one thing about about series is that when you finish the last book, you want the next one really quick. So how's, <laughs> how long do I have to wait till the next one? Well, the, the next one's already been handed in. I was oh, about I was about uh, two months late with um, uh, Schism Run Asunder, and I was about nine months early with By Heresy's Distress because book two grew and turned into book two and book three. Huh. Uh, I was trying to figure out how in the world am I going to get this down? And I said, wait! Okay, I have the answer. You have two books? <laughs> yes. Uh, so that's basically what happened. Uh, originally, um, By Heresy's Distress was scheduled for March of '09. Uh, that's been moved back a couple of months. I don't know exactly how many yet because I have a new Honorverse book coming out in March as well. And Bain Books, my my other publisher, and Tor both don't want, you. want them competing <laughs> sure, with sure. each other. Um, now, I don't want to ruin these books for anybody, but I think. It's it's pretty interesting basis that um, Armageddon Reef has in this idea that it's a futuristic human race that has pretty much been decimated by an alien race, and there's only a little bit of people that can survive, and technology attracts the alien race, and, and what structures and what conflicts start creating by having to hide what I think of as a general trait of humanity is to learn and grow and improve their technology. So that's kind of what you're addressing here, but also, of course very powerful people feeling that their way is the best way. Mm -hmm. Well, in a lot of ways, what these books are about is um, freedom of choice, uh, freedom of will, uh, the human spirit of of questioning and of inquiry, um, the question of where the right to compel belief and behavior is drawn. from the outset, they have a situation in which there is an actual, genuine, necessary imperative to suppress advanced technology for at least a period of several centuries. The problem is that the folks who are in charge of making that decision decide that the solution is to suppress technology forever. And so they create uh, a religion. 
Mm-hmm. And in effect, my 8 million colonists are brainwashed while they're in suspended animation to believe that the instant they open their eyes on their new home world is the day of creation, that the entire world came into existence at that instant. And, and when you say a new religion, it so much mirrors the Catholic Church that it's hard to say. I mean, it's a definitely a new religion because there isn't um, some of the lead characters mm-hmm. that you see in Catholicism, but it definitely has those, those, um, that language. Well, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church uh, was taken by the folks who created the religion as their model because of the hierarchical structure mm-hmm. um, and the, the, uh, ins- the institution was copied. The religion was not. Uh, it's as accurate to say that they're the Roman Catholic Church as it would be to say that Heinrich Himmler's SS was, because Himmler admired many things about the way sure. that the church... Had been, but I don't think that the church would have been real fond of Himmler's basic philosophy. The same thing is true is true here. There's, there should not be at, in any way that the, the church on this planet should not be confused with Christianity. Well, it's not Christianity. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty clearly not. Yeah. Now, the thing is, though, the, the history of our society of having the Catholic Church and having the delay of scientific growth because of the Catholic Church's dogma, that does impact our society by, I would say, a thousand years of restricted knowledge. It still does. It still to does to some day, degree. I, to I think this it's. Day. I think science is kind of in the lead right now. But so there is some similarities, and it makes sense that if you're going to try to create a society that doesn't grow technically to have a very rigid religious belief structure behind. It. Well, if you want to look at it that way, um, there's prior to the 19th century, uh, maybe the late 18th century, ideologies were essentially religious in nature, okay? Mm-hmm. It was, it, we really didn't have secular ideologies uh, per se in the Western world until the Enlightenment had a chance to come along and get its feet under it. So religion was both the, the negative ideology and the positive ideology. It was all of everything. It, it was, was all everything. logic, right? And we see this right now when we look at, uh, the, at the Islamic world that essentially religion and ideology are indistinguishable from one another and they're the great motivating force of that society many of the thinkers of the enlightenment who were pushing the scientific revolution were themselves deeply religious people and some elements of the church were very progressive all the way through Uh, by the same token the catholic church per se was certainly not the only barrier Uh, One of the problems they're going to run into eventually on Safehold is they have the written memories of 8 million literate colonists to all demonstrate that the world began at 8.14 in the afternoon on this day. And how can you argue with 8 million people? Exactly. There is no historical record to to argue with them. An archaeologist would find (laughs) only evidence supporting what they have written. Right, because there was no human society before that creation. So when it comes to the debate over whether you have a Ptolemaic or a Copernican universe (laughs) or or that kind of thing, the problem they're going to have on Safehold is going to be that we know because of this indisputable evidence what happened, therefore anything that purports to prove otherwise must be the work of the devil. Right which was not necessarily the view of the church in our own experience. Right. Um, and, and, and as lenient um, leaders of the church, 
they started taking on the responsibility of saying, well, we will change some of our ideas. We will allow the sun to be to some, be the center instead of the earth some, and, and some, so on. Some of, the, some of the foremost astronomers of the period of Galileo, for mm-hmm. example, people who agreed with him 100%, were also members of the Catholic clergy. Right. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, we have a, uh, a historical view of what religion does and doesn't do. I'm a historian by training. You can tell. Uh, <laughs> and, and I'm also a Methodist lay speaker. Okay, but as a historian, you have to be aware of the negative impact that religion has often had and how it can be used to do that. Right. When you're talking about someone's belief in God and the condition of his soul, you have got an incredibly powerful motivator. You have one that lets someone say, well, I'm doing this for the good of your soul, so whatever I do to you must be justified. You, you know, and it's, it, it tends to come down to very, very basic, powerful conflicts. That's one of the reasons I chose this format for the book. We are speaking with David Weber. His books are Off Armageddon Reef and By Schism Rent Asunder, the books that we're talking about that have to do with um, this topic that we have. But you have a lot of other books. And this is, I would, I would classify these as science fiction, fantasy, kind of pretty closely connected, especially by Schism Rent Asunder, there, there's a lot of fantasy aspects mm-hmm. um, in world building. And Well, I deliberately, I wanted sort of that last defender of Elfland feeling to uh-huh. it. Um, and that's really who Nimue Albin slash Merlin is. I mean, she's a 20-year-old, 27-year-old naval officer who's killed and then who wakes up 800 years later with her personality and her memories you know, uploaded to a, uh, a an Android yeah. for all intents and purposes. Well, we're going to be taking calls and such um, in just a minute. I'm going to ask people to call about this topic at hand. But let me ask you first, you're pretty well known f- for creating um, scientifically valid universes. Let's ha- talk about the Harrington universe um, where you have um, space travel and how space travel works. Can you kind of describe that technically? You know? <laughs> okay, well... Um, I try not to step on the physics too hard uh, in my my hand wavium. Uh, Larry Niven, I think it was, once pointed out that there is a very useful isotope. There's a very useful element, and with the right isotope of balonium, you can accomplish anything in in science <laughs> That's a great fiction. Quote, yeah. um, so what I've done, my balonium, if you will, is to assume that we can engineer gravity to order. And all sorts of interesting, fun things start from there. I had a fascinating discussion with a NASA physicist, and I said, you know, I was like, oh, oh, what are you going to tell me about? And he said, actually, I don't have a problem with it. And I said, excuse me? And he said, well, we right this minute know a little bit more about gravity than Ben Franklin knew about electricity. Right. And look where we are today. He said, you know, assuming that, you know, you, you, there are some huge, you know, assumptions in what you're doing. But assuming, he says, I don't know where we're going to go with it. Well, um, we're about to find out a lot more about gravity with the CERN project coming mm-hmm. online. So oh. it's possible we'll learn to manipulate in the future. And, and it is interesting with just that one little element, you're able to create a whole space-varying possibility. Mm-hmm. And let's get into that more in just a minute. GeekSpeak is supported by Business of Pleasure, a full-service business center in Scotts Valley, offering computer rentals, printing, design, shipping, delivered office supplies, notary, public, and more. Information is online at businesswithpleasure.com. We're t- speaking with science fiction and fantasy author David Weber, and you're welcome to ask us questions about his universes and his work, and his writing, and, and personal questions if you want, he, though he might not answer them. The phone numbers are 476-2800, again, 476-2800, or toll-free at one 800 655 
5877. Again, that's 1 800 655 5877. Geek Speak on KUSP is supported by Dr. Don Motika, announcing OptimageHealth.com in Santa Cruz, providing personalized solutions to health concerns by combining conventional medicine with a wide array of functional medicine techniques. Details at OptimageHealth.com. Um, OptimageHealth.com. That's O P T I image. Okay. Thank you, Sean. This is Central Coast Public Radio, KSP. You're listening to Geek Speak. My name is Lyle Troxell. That was Sean Cleveland. We also have Rick, sorry, Rick Rick Cleffel is here here. in the air room. (laughs) We have Ryder Brooks. Our our guest is David Weber. And Rick Cleffel is waiting to take your calls with questions and comments about the topic at hand. The phone number is to do that is 476-2800. Again, that's 476-2800 or 1-800-655-5877. Again, that's 1-800-655-KUSP. Now, uh, David, this is Rick Cleffel speaking. Um, I wanted to ask you about a certain kind aspect of your books that I think makes them really superior to a lot of space opera that we see on the screen and on TV. That sounds good. Um, there's this, and, and but I'm going to take this back to a scene from a movie that everybody knows. It's a scene in the in, first Indiana Jones movie. He's standing there. He's facing a man who's waving a sword so fast you can barely see it, and he's just got this whip, and, and he's going, "What am I going to do?" And he just takes out a pistol and blows the guy away. <laughs> now I think this is a, there's an analogy as to what you do in, in your work here, where. It, there's always a, like a level of technology that can just slot right above the, what we perceive as to be the biggest and best thing. And I think that's kind of what you do with your work. Well, I think that um, I operate on the theory that threat draws forth response um, and that uh, you are going to be looking at competing technologies not just in in the honor verse basically i assumed that technology had plateaued for several centuries um and i did that in part because of the deliberate model that i was pursuing which a historical model which was the the nelson model and so forth um and i created a situation in which you had broadside exchanges between capital ships you know and and, and all the rest of it um and what I'm doing now is you're seeing the introduction of new technologies. You're really moving into the uh, the equivalent of uh, the dreadnought revolution and, and so forth. Um, the problem that a lot of people have when they create universes for fiction is first, geographically, for example, in a fantasy universe, they create a country the size of Connecticut. Um, It has the same climate everywhere. It has one major political philosophy. It has, you know, the economy works one same way everywhere. Um, When I decide to build a fantasy world, I try to create one where you're going to have different political systems and people who don't like each other. For example, in my fantasy universe, the half-elves are the nasty racists who look down on everybody else, and the dwarves run the superpower, you know. Dwarves dwarves always get, you should pardon the expression, the short end of the stick, you know. But in this case, they get the big empire. Well, in the technology that I use and in the, the competing military systems, I assume that neither side is there to lose. And that therefore, good assumption. Like, yeah. Well, <laughs> no. therefore, when one of them perceives that the other one has an advantage, they work to overcome it. 
And for example, in the case of Manticore, they have this huge numerical disadvantage. So they know that they need a tech edge if they're going to survive the oncoming war. And then when the Republic of Haven finds out that it's getting its clock cleaned by the Manticorans because of their technological superiority, instead of all sitting there and saying, oh no, we're doomed, we have people who say, well, how do we solve the problem? How do we, how do we uh, catch up? So from the beginning, when I structured this universe, I had several levels of technology I was planning to introduce. I knew where I was going to go to, you know, this was going to be the next advantage and that was going to be the next advantage. But at the same time, I'm willing to let the books take me where the logical consequences of what I've done go. And sometimes that's not where I thought I was headed. Um, one thing that I've always hated in science fiction is, all right, I've I've now painted my character into a corner. It's an inescapable trap. Fortunately, I have God Weapon number 17 here that nobody <laughs> mentioned to yes. you ahead of time. In one of my other series, I knew when I started the, the, the first book that somewhere in the course of the second book, I was going to cause the sun to go nova and destroy a million enemy starships. Um, and I said, Hard to plan for that one. Yeah, well, basically in the very first couple of paragraphs of the first chapter of the first book, I mentioned the fact that if this particular star drive that these people use uh, had malfunctioned closer into the star, it might have caused it to go nova, you know, and then when I needed them to go nova, I said, well, we have these 12 starships that are going to kick their drives in inside the danger zone to provoke the nova, but I'd established it right there in book one. You have to play fair with the reader. Um, I agree. I, I can't stand it when you get sideswept. What's one of the things that yeah. mysteries are always cut that line for me, where if you haven't told me a little bit that this is a possibility, mm-hmm. you can't slap it upon me as a, as yeah. a reader. Yeah, you, you can use sleight of hand to keep somebody from looking closely at a character in a mystery, for example. It takes a lot of skill. But if the character is going to be crucial to the solution of the mystery, he has to be there, and what he did or she did has to be logically consistent with it has how to the slide book is written. It has, yes, it has to fit. You have to do the same thing with your technology. The other thing is you have to respect the limitations of your toolbox. When you give the characters a set of tools, mm-hmm. you have to make them live with those tools. You can't just suddenly change the rules because, oh darn, that didn't work. You know. So So in, in the um, honor universe they're they're they can manipulate gravity. How do they use that to propel themselves? Well, um, the impeller drive, you, know, you have to understand that these are actually technically engineering problems mm-hmm. here that we're talking about. I do theory. You know. The engineering is up to the guys who are actually living in the books. Uh, but essentially, the, the concept behind the impeller wedge is that you have two inclined uh, planes of intense uh, uh, gravity waves, gravity waves, which create... Uh, a pocket of what you might call curdled space. And the, the, the gravity waves can be propagated through space at light speed. Mm-hmm. Okay? And the ship inside the wedge can go with them, except, of course, that you would turn the entire crew into anchovy paste, you know, real quickly. So the, the gravity wave is also used as sort of an inertial sump through the compensator that they've got, the inertial compensators on board. And the actual acceleration rate that you can maintain 
is a factor of the efficiency curve of your your inertial compensator, which is affected by the mass of the vessel. So you don't turn your turn so the crew into paste into anchovy paste. Uh-huh. That's right. Also, so that I mean, you know, I'm allowing gravitational levels, uh, acceleration levels here in theory, that probably are at the point where it would be impossible to maintain atomic integrity. Uh, for most forces, I mean, in theory, you can accelerate it like 150,000 gravities, you know. And I hate to think what but, happens to water at that. <laughs> but the other, the other interesting side of it is that the the gravity waves then become uh, a primary defense for the ship because there are very few uh, weapons and destructive forces that are going to be able to get through a band that's maybe. 10 meters deep in which the gravity differential goes from free fall to 190,000 gravities, you know, it's just I, I hate, just even hate to think what that would do to like beam focus or, right, <laughs> or right. something it's like that. It's all gone. Um, now the other thing So, well, because of that, that yeah. ability for the ship to have a mo- momentum system which also is a shield system mm-hmm. you have that traditional navy navigation type of feel where you have to angle your ship correctly based off of who you're attacking to be able mm-hmm. to get your guns to bear missiles to bear and also to protect yourself from their incoming missiles so and you just don't stop l- in space right? exactly there's a lot of strategy yeah well and the other thing is that uh, this is not visual range combat okay uh, we were talking before the show you know in Star Trek you have these weapons that in theory can target somebody at five and a half hundred million kilometers and somehow we're always in visual range firing, firing phasers and <laughs> photons at each other. Right. And that's I realize that's a dramatic constraint. I love the Star the, the Stargate series. Mm-hmm. But it's like I told Sharon, I said, Boy, I wish I could get some of that C four. With enough of their C four, you can blow up a starship. You know, and she says, <laughs> It's a dramatic convention, David. <laughs> Shut up and watch the program. And I'm like I'm like, Yes, dear. Um, but it's it's like you know obviously this is antimatter C four that they're using, um, and I just decided when I got started in this I'm a I'm a military historian political historian by training, um, I just decided that I was not going to subordinate the ranges the 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 ranges that are implicit in the technology the ships have to well this this is cooler right okay. Um, and I think that's part of what you were talking about earlier about trying to be consistent in 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 the technology. Yeah. Um, and even if you make a mistake in the technology, you then have to be consistent within terms of the mistake. Um, and, and have you made a mistake? Here and there. Here and there. <laughs> we won't go into what they were. But there are also some points where, where people... Um, I, I tell people, because it happens to be true, that no one has ever read a single book I've written. Uh, instead, everyone has read the books that I've written through the prism of their own experience, their own knowledge base, their own attitudes and views. Um, and sometimes this means that people have pointed out things to me that I didn't realize that I'd done, that looking back, I realize I did do. Um, but it also means sometimes that people leap to assumptions about what I'm saying about mm-hmm. technology. For example, there there's a debate going on on uh, Bain's Bar at Bain.com, which is the Bain Books website. There's been references to the fact that there appears to be no AI in, mm-hmm. in the universe. There is no self-aware AI in the honorverse. And I did that deliberately because I have self-aware uh, machine intelligences in, uh, in other books. 
But there's a heck of a lot of AI. You can't run a ship this size without So it's implicit. It. You don't even talk about That's it right. because it doesn't have a personality. It, it, would, be, it would be kind of like uh, a, a novelist writing about the 21st century talking about a book as a piece of technology. Right. Okay? Because for somebody from, say, the 14th century, a book today with moving type and all the rest of it would be an advanced piece sure. of technology. Especially about the way they can be reproduced. Exactly. And But for these guys running around in the honorverse, the AI is just there. Right. Okay, they don't talk about it any more than we'd be talking about Windows. Well, so, so well, we talk about Windows a lot, but not <laughs> especially always. on Geekspeak. Yes. Let me tell yeah. you, more than we want to. So, speaking of the um, Barons Bar, um, Wiverin, the chat name, is actually Robert from Monterey, asks us offline: When is the next Honor Arrington book going to be available, and will it be a war with the Slayer and Federation? Uh, gee, I wonder if I. Can, um, when I answer that, okay. First of all, the next Honorverse book is scheduled for release in March of 2009. Uh, it is technically a sequel to Shadow Saganami, but actually, what's happening at this point is that from here on out, the storyline is getting complicated enough that I'm going to be sort of advancing on a broad front. Uh, in theory, there are three separate Honorverse series. There's the Crown of Slaves series I'm doing with Eric Flint. There's the Shadow Saganami series, which is a solo, but was starting off off to one side. And then there's the main stem novels. Well, what's happening now is you can think of it as a three-part novel. Uh, when I there are, are you, the, you mean you're tying them all together in yeah. this next book? The first three chapters of Shadow Saganami, for example, are essentially dealing with something that already happened and at all costs you know what happened but you're seeing it from the perspective of a different character uh, who then becomes an important viewpoint character there's going to be a ch one chapter that appeared and at all costs will probably appear totally unchanged in the sequel to crown of slaves this does a couple of things. One is, in the case of the Shadow Saganami, it allows me to take a character and put you behind that character's eyes uh, in, in a different way. The other thing that it does is that it nails down the temporal sequence for the events that are going on in these three books. The problem is that the events in question are taking place weeks of travel mm -hmm. from one another. And so rather than trying to do them all simultaneously uh, or trying to do them all in one book and putting in a, or putting in a lot of backstory to tell you, well, this happened over there, you know, off screen, what I can do is I can actually have the events transpire. Right. And then I'm just going to assume that the reader knows what happened in the earlier books. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think you do that a bit in By Schism Rent Asunder, too. I mean, it's, it's a pretty uh, common well, thing in a series to kind of say, you got to know a little bit. And even if you don't, you can get through it, but it'll be more enlightening if you read the rest of the series. Well, what's, what's yeah. happening here, though, is that it's not a direct linear progression from at all costs to Mission of Honor, which mm -hmm. is going to be the next main stem honor novel. You have to kind of jump over to the side and do the two... Shadow Saganami sequel and Crown of Slave sequel before you can actually do the next one. Um, it's I'm not sure if someone has done it this way before. Mm -hmm. Okay, because this really is it's almost like a three part novel. Uh, you could you know instead of having thirty chapters in the book, you have ninety. You right. know for a single bite. 
of the storyline. So you're not going to mention whether it's a Salarian Federation war, but you can you assure that Robert will be um, and will enjoy the book? I think so. Or <laughs> Wyvern. Okay, yeah, I good. think so. So um, Alex wanted to get, bring Alex supports us uh, via chat from down south, and he suggested that your AI in these ships are more like ABS in a car, where it's not aware, but it's doing smart things. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That's that's actually that's a very good uh, uh, analogy. Um, and, and you could even use um, Deep Blue or whatever the, uh, the, the AI that plays chess, right? It's mm-hmm. very good at a strategic thing. But it doesn't mean it's self-aware. It doesn't mean you can have a conversation with it. And it doesn't mean or that it want cares. To. <laughs> or you well, want to. <laughs> but it, it also it does, it, it doesn't care. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's just it would dispassionately sit there and watch the missiles come in and destroy it if somebody didn't tell it that it was supposed to stop them. Um, and, and that's... That is a good point. That's where you actually do talk about intelligent computers mm-hmm. is the AI when that's just dealing with on, oncoming threats. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's when it's yeah when when you know the, the 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 unexpected missile attack comes in and there's nobody yeah okay there's nobody on on watch you know the computers are okay we know we're supposed to keep the ship from being destroyed so we will do our best we will right. do better with human input. But, you know, and when you have one of my tactical officers who's modifying attack profiles on the fly for missiles that have a range of like three light minutes, okay, I think you have to assume that there's some pretty impressive AI support in what that person is doing right. for him to be in the loop and affecting things at all. Yeah. And, and something else that um, happens, if you think about space, you're flying at vast, really fast speeds in a straight line. Mm-hmm. And if you're coming at a threat, you know, let's say you actually want to attack a ship, um, if they make a small move at any point in time, if they're able to do that, y- your vectors are off, and you're not going to come into contact with that ship. Yeah. And the speed you're coming at each other, you know, you talk about you know, there's an open window for mm-hmm. a very short period of time, and that's the fight. Yeah. Well, and, and that's something that I work out the vectors and the accelerations and whatnot. So I know what their bubbles are, and when their bubbles impact on each other, they're, they're, the reach their of their weapons of and whatnot. Right. Yeah. You're very detailed with this information. I mean, how do you figure this out? I want to know, because um, you could get into the details of these vectors and the headings and the speeds and you know the bubble, and it just mm-hmm. find it really incredible that you, you put this much information on, into a book. On, on rare occasions, I have decided where I need to be at the end of the battle and then worked my way back <laughs> to be sure that <laughs> I got strategy. there. Um, you know, if you decide, well, I, have, I want the climactic moment to be, for example, from Honor of the Queen, where the two ships are closing into their, their lethal range and they've hammered each other and, you know, and Honor is taking her ship and knowing that it's going to be destroyed but thinking she may be able to do enough damage to save the planet behind her mm-hmm. sort of thing. I knew how I needed that final sequence to work out. And so I went back and sort of plotted the battle in reverse well, for where I needed it to it's be. It's interesting because, of course, in that you create potentially um, intuition to work for honor to mm-hmm. go through. Not that she can logically figure it out, but because of the circumstances that are going to come about, she'll wind up winning. And that is a big part of a character that's a hero and amazing, is that they have something more than just a logic path. Well, they have something more than a logic path. They have the author on their side. Well, <laughs> that always uh, helps. But, now, but, yeah. D- David, yeah. I, I want to interject this because we're talking about Honor Harrington mm-hmm. here. Yeah. And, and that name says something. And you're 
a, a lay minister for the Methodist mm-hmm. Church. Um, could you talk about developing the morals for these future societies? I mean, we in, in the 20th century, we have a certain set of morals that are pretty different from mm-hmm. what happened 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. And how do you design morals for the next century? Well, I think that it helps to be a historian, okay, because you then have a feel for how morals shift and change. The thing is that the primary difference between where we are right now and where humanity has been at most times in its past is the degree of relativism that's crept into Mm -hmm. our our moral structure. The notion that uh, there is no absolute right, there there is no objective standard of right or wrong. Uh, there is not a standard that all of us should recognize as this is the, what the big kahuna laid out and the way we're supposed to do it. There are many enormous strengths to that sort of a perspective. There are also enormous weaknesses. And that's true of any moral and philosophical system at any given time in its history. What I've done in the honor verse, for example, is I have assumed that with the diaspora of humanity, different philosophical and moral um, paths can be followed in different societies within what is, in effect, a pluralistic galactic society that sort of allows all of them space. I have Beowulf, which is sort of uh, 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 U.S. uh, Western world, taken to its logical progression. Um, I have uh, uh, Grayson, which was founded by religious fundamentalist lunatics uh, who believed technology was the work of the devil, so they bought a starship to get away from it. Okay, And then found themselves marooned on a planet where they couldn't abandon technology and survive. How do you react to that, right. that situation? So, uh, in essence, the, the, the morals... The the, 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 the the philosophical imperatives grow out of the situations that I put the characters in. The morals of my, my protagonists actually are very much of a pattern in all of my books. If you look at them, who they are are responsibility takers. They are people who don't look at a situation and say, well, there's a terrible mess. Thank God it's not my responsibility to clear it up. They look at it and say there's a mess and it has to be cleared up or people are going to get hurt. And so they start working to clear it up. Um, They uh, are self-motivated. And I think one of the reasons that that resonates with my readers is because of the fact that everybody perceives us as living in a period of moral relativism. Mm -hmm. And they want to believe, which, by the way, I think is true. They want to believe that there are people out there who are going to step up to their responsibilities are going to discharge those responsibilities and are going to take responsibility for their own actions as well as dealing with the problems that they have in front of them. I think that's why it's called uh, fiction. No, you think I don't that's why it's how, called fiction? I don't know how a bunch of our society does that. We're speaking with David Weber. He's the author of multiple books, including the Honor Arrington series, The, the Arrington Universe, and um, his most recent books, a new series, Off Armageddon Reef and By Schism, Rent Asunder, um, another wonderful world that he's created and I hope to keep seeing um, going along. 
Rick, give another question. Your uh, safe hole book um, has a kind of an interesting dichotomy at the heart uh, of it. Um, safe hole, by the way, is the <laughs> Armageddon Reef and uh, Rent Asunder books. Go on. Uh, because it's a really about two competing visions of humanity. Mm-hmm. One is that this idea that we're good enough, all we need to do is just till the fields, milk the cows, raise the kids, grow the grain, that's it. That's all humanity needs to do and praise the earth and we're good. Mm-hmm. The other is of this you know, ever-growing technological changing race that actually is able to change its own nature mm-hmm. at some point in time. And you create a great tension between those two. Where do you yourself fall in that in, in that uh, I dichotomy? fall okay, I have um I have very little use for people who say, boy, have we created a bunch of problems. We better throw out technology to solve them. Uh at science fiction conventions, uh I had I walked around for like 10 or 11 days with a ruptured appendix when I was in college and graduate school. Without modern science, I would not be here. So somebody can usually be counted on at a science fiction convention to say, well, the problem is we should, you know, go back to all organic vegetables and and whatnot. And I will say, okay, how many people out there have ever had appendicitis? And I get hands. I say, how many people have diabetes? I get hands. And by the time I've asked... Any any organ transplants in the audience? Yeah, by the time I've gone through about 10 levels of questions, every hand in the audience is up. And I say, okay, all of you are dead without modern technology. Okay? And they go kind of... Hmm. Not to mention the, uh, you know, fifty percent more deaths from just broken bones. Exactly. And just simple exactly. things that we think. Yeah. Well, take for okay. Granted. There's. Uh, I don't know how many of you may have heard of it, but there's Biltmore House, which is right above Asheville. It was built by one of the Vanderbilts. It is the largest privately owned residence in the in North America. It's it's a European chateau. The guy built it. It took years to build it. He built it as a self defend self supporting community. Blah 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 blah. You know, owned like fifty miles on a side of the land for it, and then he got uh, appendicitis and died at forty two. Mm. Okay, all right. That's the difference technology makes. Okay, he could have the money, he could do everything else, but by golly, he couldn't dodge that that appendicitis bullet. Technology, to me, is an enabler, and it enables human beings to live up to their own standards. Okay, now that doesn't mean they necessarily will, but if for my my judgment is, for example, that the abolition of slavery. Certainly it was a moral issue, but it was also the fact that you were reaching a point at which you could no longer justify slavery as a necessary way to produce a large agrarian labor force. Because technology came in to Mm -hmm. replace it. Uh, Semmelweis and the Brass Bedstead had a huge impact on uh, uh, female mortality rates in childbirth. Mm -hmm. And that in turn had a huge impact on how many women there were who could go into the labor force. And then technology made more jobs available that you couldn't rule women out of on the basis of you're just not strong enough to do it. So every step that our technology advances gives us a greater ability to live up to our supposed belief in the dignity of the individual human being and the rights of the and the options 
of the individual human being. And with that, I think we will finish another episode of Geek Speak. What a wonderful note to finish on. Thank you, David Weber, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You can find multiple, multiple books of David Weber's online and all over the place. His most recent uh, books are the Safe Hold series, Off Armageddon Reef, and By Schism, Rent Asunder. And, of course, Sean, our regular geek, is very addicted to the Honor Arrington series. <laughs> yeah. As uh, these new books, you can find more information at Tor.com. And uh, go to Bain.com for the honor book. And that's B-A-E-N, Bain. Yeah. In fact, you can get we'll free books up, up on, there. We'll put yeah. these up on geekspeak.org. Geekspeak on KOSP is supported by Santa Cruz Electronics, specializing in cosmetic. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> supported by Henry J. Ramirez, DDS, in Santa Cruz, specializing in cosmetic and family dentistry, using digital technology for less radiation, offering one appointment, crowns, and veneers. For appointments and more information, 423-2447. Broadcasting HD radio on 88.9 FM, this is Central Coast Public Radio, KOSP Santa Cruz, KBDH San Auto, streaming live and podcasting at KOSP.org. O-R-G. GeekSpeak is a registered service mark of online tonight with David Lawrence and is used by permission. And GeekSpeak on KOSP is supported by Santa Cruz Electronics, offering an extensive selection of computer and electronic parts as well as support services. Santa Cruz Electronics is open daily at 2808 SoCal Avenue and online at santacruzelectronics.com. The geeks today were Sean Cleveland, Rick Kleffel, and Ryder Brooks. I'm Lyle Troxel. Our guest today was David Weber, and thank you all for participating on GeekSpeak today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being here, David. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.